So uh, thank you ever so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and it's particularly uh, interesting to for someone who comes from a legal background to t come and explain some key legal concepts and how these legal concepts may impact on uh, public health and, in particular, obesity prevention and even more specifically childhood obesity prevention. Now, um, I'm slightly outside my comfort zone today because I'm trying to talk about the discourse of the industry and seeing how this discourse of the industry has impacted, or not, on the regulation of food marketing to children. And I've chosen this example of food marketing to children for two reasons. One you've hinted at, this is my area of specialization and I've worked with uh, several uh, states worldwide to try and help them develop their laws on food marketing uh, to children, so this is an area I, I know relatively well. And secondly, the other reason is because uh, this um, case study of food marketing is particularly revealing in some ways of the discourse that the industry has developed, perhaps even uh, the most extreme example uh, of the discourse of the industry because the area is extremely controversial and this is where you have the most polarized views as far as what the role of industry should be when talking about uh, uh, regulating uh, food marketing to children, or as we will see, not regulating food marketing to children. Now, I guess this group is particularly familiar with the figures of obesity uh, in the UK, uh, or uh, the figures of uh, childhood obesity in particular, and in Europe. The, the UK is certainly no isolated example. Uh, as far as uh, this obesity epidemic is concerned, you can see that countries like uh, Germany, Greece, Hungary are also uh, extremely affected and the trends are on the rise in all the European countries except in France that boasts to have stabilized obesity figures except that when you look at the figures more closely you see that in lower socioeconomic groups, the figures uh, do not indicate that there is a stabilization of the figures. Rather, with uh, the, the lower socioeconomic groups uh, also suffer more and more from obesity, even in France, where uh, we are told we shouldn't worry that much about obesity prevention. Now, my starting point is an argument that the industry, not only the food industry, but also the tobacco and the alcohol industries, have invoked over and over again, advertising is a form of expression. So if you want to regulate uh, advertising, you are going to infringe on the freedom of commercial operators to express themselves and convey important information to consumers of food uh, products. And I need to insist that there is some truth in this argument because constitutional courts worldwide have recognized, starting with the US Supreme Court in 1976, have recognized the right of commercial operators to invoke the protection of higher norms, constitutional norms, the US uh, Article 1, um, I, I can't remember the Supreme uh, Court text, uh, I've, I've written about it over and over again, the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights, uh, the Human Rights Act in the UK, they all recognize that Commercial expression is part of this notion of expression and therefore deserves constitutional protection. What does that mean, constitutional protection? It means that any laws that you adopt must comply with this notion that freedom of expression is protected. Now, this has been used to argue that advertising should not be restricted. 
because that would go against this principle that uh, ad, uh, commercial expression is protected. If you look at the European Union, the EU, there's also another argument that the industry has used, and beyond the food industry, any kind of industry has used, is to say that the role of advertising is absolutely fundamental to the free movement of goods and services within the internal market. You know, this larger market whereby a consumer could decide to move to another country to consume food uh, products or services, or food operators could sell their uh, services and goods outside their own member states. And the idea is, if you really want the interpenetration of markets, then advertising has a very important role to play, because it allows consumers to discover the attributes of certain goods and services. And therefore, it allows them to try and consume some goods and services they may not have consumed before because they simply didn't know they existed or they simply didn't know what kind of attributes these goods or services had. So the idea of protecting uh, freedom of commercial expression is also to ensure that the consumer, to coin a phrase, is empowered. Now, I won't discuss the broad topic of whether advertising is a source of information. We can discuss that another day, but these uh, pictures may give a, an idea that lifestyle advertising, as it is called, is not always a proper source of information for the consumers to exercise their uh, choices and to be effectively empowered. What the food industry very often, tobacco or alcohol industries very often forget to say in their uh, argument is that Freedom of expression is not absolute, and it's never been absolute, and it's particularly not absolute when you're talking about commercial speech, advertising, because commercial speech, as the US Supreme Court and all of the uh, uh, constitutional courts have said in the world, commercial speech is of lesser value than political and artistic speech. So it has a value, informing consumers, but nonetheless, it can be restricted in particular for reasons of public health protection, among others. Uh, so we have to balance potentially conflicting interests. On the one hand, you have freedom of commercial expression, which is protected by Article 10.1, but then there is a recognition that the protection of public health can lead to a restriction of this freedom of commercial expression. Now, how do we decide we, uh, how to balance these conflicting interests, we carry out what lawyers call a proportionality assessment, which is a balancing exercise between potentially conflicting interests. And put simply, the proportionality principle is to say that you do not crack a nut with a sledgehammer. You crack a nut with a nutcracker. So that means that there are two tests that courts have developed worldwide. They apply differently in the US, in Europe, and so on, but the idea is the same everywhere. It's that first of all, a measure must be legitimate. You must show that the measure is necessary to protect public health. And the first argument that the food advertising industry has developed is to say, well, marketing restrictions do not contribute to the protection of public health. And I'll come back to this argument in a moment. And the second limb of the proportionality test is what we call in law proportionality stricto sensu, in the strict sense, which means that you must ensure that the restriction you impose on freedom of expression does not exceed what is necessary to effectively protect public health. So an example would be talking about food marketing. If you determine that there is a relationship between food marketing and 
children's consumption patterns, then you could impose restrictions, but it would probably be disproportionate to buy any kind of food advertising, because yes, you would probably uh, protect children from uh, the, the impact of unhealthy food marketing, but you would also deprive traders of the opportunity to pr promote their more healthy products and services. So the idea is do not cast the net too wide because then your measure can be uh, struck down, it can be annulled, and you would have to do it all over again. So this is quite a powerful weapon, this proportionality test for the industry to rely on because they, and they've done so very successfully, for example, uh, in Norway, they've done so in the United States in relation to tobacco and alcohol advertising, um, setting the net too wide may be very counterproductive, and this is why you need to rely on evidence, you need to have political will, I'll come back to that, and you need to know exactly how courts of law will apply the standards of proportionality they will have developed. For example, in the United States, the, the test is very strict. The court will review, the US Supreme Court, I mean, will be review very carefully whether or not the regulator has been too, um, has, has gone too far in restricting uh, a form of marketing. By contrast, in Europe, the uh, Supreme Court's European Court of Justice, European Court on Human Rights, uh, Supreme Court in this country, are more generous with the regulator and say, well, determining where to cast the net, how wide to cast the net, requires complex political, cultural, and social assessments. And therefore, uh, it's not for the courts to substitute its assessment to that of the regulator, but the regulator must still do its homework, so to speak, in that it must deduce the relevant evidence to show that there is some relationship and that it has exercised its discretion with a measure of reasonableness. Okay? The story started uh, very much in the 1990s where in the UK a range of uh, studies showed that children saw quite a lot of uh, commercial advertising on television, all the research uh, for, for quite many years and perhaps still the mid-2000 were done nearly exclusively on television as it was the main medium for food marketing. Uh, the research also showed that most of the uh, products advertised were food products and most of these products, if not all of them, uh, up to 99%, were for unhealthy food. Therefore, they argued that unhealthy food marketing should be banned. Response and reasonable response, to some extent, of uh, the food industry was denial. And here are some of the arguments that we put forward. Food advertising does not uh, make children's fat. It's not because they are exposed to advertising that you've established that the restriction on advertising was legitimate because you have not shown that there was indeed a link. Why they would get fat by watching television is because they don't engage in enough physical activity and also they snack whilst they watch television. Therefore, it's above all the parents' responsibility, that's another argument we've heard over and over again, we still hear, to ensure that their children are not uh, eating uh, unhealthy food whilst watching TV, and above all, do not watch that much TV, but engage in physical activity, the other side of the obesity equation, with which the food industry does not have that much uh, to do, uh, arguably. And then, of course, this has been coupled with the argument that obesity is complex. We can only agree. You will probably be familiar with the foresight map that establishes that 
uh, obesity is indeed multifactorial and only a multi-sectoral response with a range of stakeholders at different levels, global, regional, national, local, can solve this epidemic. So what the industry said is, well, you can't hope that the regulation of advertising is going to provide a magic bullet. Yes, this is absolutely true. But it has been used alongside these other arguments to uh, oppose any form of regulation. So because there was no real evidence of uh, impact of food marketing on children, the research has become far more focused. And um, we, um, yeah, the question of personal responsibility as well. Uh, the, the research has become far more focused. and has shown, and the UK has been pioneering in this respect, that there was an association between food marketing and children's purchase requests and food preferences. Now, this is not to say that there is uh, a causation link, as the law would understand it, to the exclusion of others. As we said, and we agree with food industry operators, there is no magic bullet. So there is no pretension by regulating uh, food marketing, you're solving the epidemic. But this is not to say either that uh, the regulation of food marketing does not have a role to play as the evidence has established. So uh, we can go a bit more into the evidence if you like. What we can agree with as well is that the relationship between uh, food marketing and um, children's consumption uh, patterns, uh, consumption uh, choices and purchase requests is very difficult to quantify. So again, a possibility for the food industry to argue that uh, there, is, uh, there is not much point in uh, regulating because that would create more loss than it would provide benefits and the losses that they've invoked on a regular basis are economic uh, losses, creation of jobs, uh, loss of advertising revenues, uh, for the advertising industry, and therefore uh, the ultimate argument has been a, a lot in the UK uh, uh, when Ofcom uh, reflected on what kind of regulation to impose, they argued that children's program would lose in their quality because they would lose in food marketing, uh, the, the, the channels would lose in food marketing revenues. Counter argument to that, pretty straightforward, you're not banning any form of advertising, you could market healthier products, and you could also uh, market something else than food. Uh, and in some countries, we've seen an increase in mobile phone marketing, for example, to uh, compensate for the loss of uh, food marketing revenues. Uh, so the World Health Organization, ultimately in 2010, adopted a series of recommendations, a set of recommendations on uh, food marketing to children, and they call on uh, states to restrict the impact of uh, high in uh, fat, sugar, and salt food to children. These uh, recommendations were incidentally adopted by unanimity by this country, by all uh, 28 uh, member states of the European Union, but um, have not been much implemented worldwide. They are supplemented by a framework for implementation, which is intended to put some flesh on the bones of these uh, recommendations. I will just limit myself to three remarks on what these recommendations advocate. Now, recommendations, they are not legally binding. So member states uh, adopt them, approve them, but ultimately there is no sanction if they do not implement them in their own member states. So it's not like the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is a global treaty and as such 
uh, is legally uh, binding on states. What the recommendations advocate, number one, is to adopt, is for states to adopt a comprehensive approach. That means that they should not uh, regulate, for example, television advertising, as the UK has done, uh, by banning uh, advertising for unhealthy food insurance programs, but they should also uh, cover more media to limit the exposure of children to unhealthy food marketing, in particular the internet, in particular more and more mobile phone marketing, uh, in-school marketing. But also, uh, states should look at the other side of the uh, marketing coin, which is the power of marketing. And there are certain techniques that are particularly effective in convincing children to adopt certain consumption patterns. For example, the use of licensed characters or equity brand characters. Uh, the Happy Meals, of course, being a prime example of that. The use of celebrity and Beyonce here uh, advertising uh, for Pepsi at the Super Bowl uh, last year. So you, these techniques are particularly effective and what the recommendations say is they should be considered and in the package of measures a state should adopt, then these uh, should also uh, be taken into account and banned for when, when uh, advertising for uh, unhealthy food, uh, not for healthy food. These, uh, these um, uh, recommendations focus very much on unhealthy food. So that also raises different kinds of questions on how you categorize food. Uh, in the UK, there is the FSA model you, you may be familiar with. Um, the other point that this, uh, these recommendations insist on is the importance of regulating cross-border marketing. So there should be a cooperation between member states, uh, for example, of the European Union, to ensure that an advert that originates from one state uh, cannot reach the other states, particularly if these other states ban the marketing of energy food to children. And finally, and very importantly for our purpose uh, today, uh, the, the recommendations insist on the fact that it's the responsibility of governments to lay down definitions, what is a child, what is a healthy food, what is marketing, what is a children's program, and in doing so, they should make sure that they avoid all conflicts of interest and undue uh, influence from commercial operators. Problem is, what does that mean? It's difficult to say if we look at the World Health Organization documents and um, generally across the world, there's been hardly any efforts to define what a conflict of interest actually is in relation to obesity prevention. So we do not really know, we do not have much guidance on what the World Health Organization and other uh, regulatory uh, bodies and uh, UN organizations uh, consider to be a conflict of interest. So, I'll just show you the ambiguity in uh, the uh, WHO Global Strategy on Diet and Physical Activity that was adopted in 2004. Now, the purpose for this strategy back in 2004 was to challenge the food industry, particularly in Europe and in the United States, to do far more to improve nutrition and help tackle obesity prevention. So there was the first recognition at global level that obesity was indeed a problem that was calling for a global strategy. However, the wording of the strategy is very ambiguous regarding the involvement that it foresees for the uh, food industry in the prevention and the control of obesity worldwide. Because, of course, it invites states to listen to the voice of the industry. And by you know, contributing in democratic societies to uh, the definition 
and the, uh, the information of the debate is conceivable, even highly recommendable, I would argue. However, where the strategy is not uh, so clear is uh, when it encourages government to uh, establish mechanisms to promote the participation of food businesses in activities related to diet, physical activity, and health. Again, we don't really know what the strategy meant by this. And the food industry uh, has used this as a, this ambiguity as an opportunity uh, because the premise that the strategy uh, did set uh, was that the industry did have a positive role to play in preventing obesity worldwide, even though, again, what this role should really consist of has never been defined to date. So here is what the, um, the IFBA um, International Food and Beverage Alliance uh, stated in relation to this strategy and what they see, uh, they see their role to be. Now, IFBA was formed, and the, the quotes mean that I've taken that directly verbatim from their website, when uh, CEOs of the world's leading food and non-alcoholic beverage manufacturers signed a letter to WHO Director Margaret Chan committing their companies to support the strategy I just referred to. So the idea is we're here to support, we're here to help. And they refer to the um, expert reports on uh, the, the, the prevalence of obesity, still being very vague, and they say that we're going to make five commitments in five years. The commitments are still in progress. Uh, just for your information, here are the, the companies that have signed the, uh, that are uh, that constitute the IFBA Alliance, and they say that IFBA members' company represent the global leaders of the food and non-beverages, alcoholic beverage industry. We employ more than 3.5 million people worldwide and have a combined annual revenues in 2012 of approximately $422 billion. So just one figure to show you that when we're talking about the industry, if we want to regulate, we need evidence, but we need also an enormous poli a political will which may have been lacking to date. Now, the five commitments, uh, they, they very much range, um, are broad ranging and cover different areas of um, uh, the obesity prevention strategy that could potentially be effective, recognizing that yes, there is no magic bullet, but you can see a shift in the discourse here, is that we're not denying that we have a role in, um, in uh, obesity through marketing because we are going to extend responsible advertising initiatives and marketing to children globally. So, is self-regulation, which is the regulation of the industry by the industry, really the solution? And I'm asking this question because in most states worldwide, in most regions worldwide, uh, including the Americas, the European Union, East and Middle Eastern uh, region, uh, there are such pledges as the IFBA pledge, and some of them, as I will show you in a moment, uh, in particular in Europe, have been more fleshed out than just saying we're going to uh, develop responsible marketing to children. And before I show you what the EU pledge, the pledge by uh, food industry operators actually um, undertake to do, uh, I will uh, just insist on one thing that through this idea promoted by the 2004 uh, strategy of the WHO on diet and physical activity, you have seen quite a lot of platforms uh, come up a bit like mushrooms. So you have a lot of fora where the food industry consumer groups 
sort of meet to discuss what kind of commitments we should uh, make to uh, control and prevent uh, obesity. And this has been even uh, recognized as very valuable by regulators, not least the European Commission and the EU as a whole, which uh, in the only provision that really attempt to restrict marketing to children in the whole of uh, European Union law, we see this provision. Member States and the Commission shall encourage media service providers to develop codes of conduct regarding inappropriate audiovisual commercial communications, commercial PNS, uh, accompanying or included in children's programs of unhealthy food and beverages. Now, um, I never get bored of commenting on this provision. Um, a, few, a few points clear, uh, quickly. First of all, there's no binding obligation of the Member States and the Commission to do something apart from encouraging media service providers to develop codes of conduct. So codes of conduct is clearly a call for self-regulation, as opposed to regulation, which is binding in law. And um, a very cynical, I, I like to believe this is a drafting mistake. Uh, of uh, we should develop codes of conduct on inappropriate audiovisual communication, marketing for unhealthy food. I like to believe that all uh, along the lines of uh, WHO recommendations and all unhealthy food marketing is inappropriate. But this is not what this provision, as currently drafted, suggests. Let's hope it's only a drafting mistake rather than a cynical uh, approach to uh, marketing. So, in 2007, as soon as the, the, this, uh, just before this directive, uh, audiovisual media services directive was adopted, the food industry had already been quite proactive, as they tend to be, proactive and creative, two, two qualities, um, had signed the EU pledge. The EU pledge is signed by all these uh, giants of the uh, food uh, industry in Europe. Uh, and what they undertake to do is to restrict some forms of marketing for unhealthy food to children. Now, interestingly, because the uh, audiovisual media services directive calls on media providers to act here, it's the food industry that's acted. But the pledge is supported by the World Federation of Advertisers. So we have an alliance that we see very often in the field of obesity prevention between the advertising and the food industries. Now, what are the commitments? They, in 2007, they had been criticized for being particularly weak, so they've been enhanced. I'm uh, listing here the enhanced commitments. In effect, the food industry undertakes not to advertise to children any unhealthy food products. And secondly, uh, it undertakes not to promote, not to um, make any uh, communication related to its product in primary schools, primary schools, so it's not very old children that are targeted here, primary schools, except if the school administration specifically requests it for educational purposes. So what can we say? First of all, yes, there is an attempt of the food industry to curb some forms of unhealthy food marketing. So we are no longer in this era of denial we've moved on and the food industry is to some extent embracing the global agenda on uh, food marketing to children. And it's doing so so well in some ways that um, regulators have been very um, prompt in uh, praising the industry for its ability to react promptly 
responsibly that it has uh, enhanced commitments when faced with the criticism that the original commitments were not sufficient to protect children from uh, unhealthy food marketing, and also that it's cheap because self-regulation is developed by the industry for the industry, so it means that you do not have lengthy consultation and legislative or regulatory processes that are quite expensive for the public purse. So quite a lot uh, going for self-regulation in some ways. Except that we have three categories of objections, uh, two specifically on the pledge and its content, which could potentially be addressed by pledge signatories, and the third one is uh, more fundamental. So, first of all, the pledge has a limited coverage. Um, the, the commitments apply to around 80% of the, the, the food industry, not 100%. So it means that 20% uh, will uh, not be uh, covered. Um, it only applies to children under 12, whereas we have more and more research to show that teenagers are also influenced by unhealthy food marketing. But the age of 12 has been chosen because for years uh, uh, the research has shown that uh, up to 12 children do not necessarily have the cognitive skills required to be critical towards advertising. But it's not because they are critical that nonetheless they are not subjected to an enormous amount of peer pressure and, um, and brand awareness is particularly high uh, in teenagers as research over the last five, five years is starting to show. And uh, then not all media are covered, and uh, in particular, uh, smartphones do not seem to be covered by the pledge. There are also a question of other games. Um, so, for example, uh, why do we see that in uh, the streets of the UK, at least certainly in Liverpool, the main road is absolutely covered with a lot of McDonald's memories. That's the latest campaign of McDonald's to celebrate 40 years together. The argument, of course, is this is not advertising to children. This is advertising to parents. But the idea is clearly to promote the consumption of healthy food by children here, uh, I would uh, suspect. And this child uh, is probably not 12 years old. So that takes me to this other question of what do we mean by not advertising to children? Well, the pledge defines what it means by a children's program, a TV program. And it means that if you have an audience threshold of more than 35% made up of uh, children, this will be a children's program. <coughs> Except that most TV that children's, children watch is not classified as a children's program because it's a broad audience, family viewing show. The X Factor, strictly condensing, well, it's on the BBC, but the X Factor, let's say, where you will have an awful lot of uh, marketing, not only advertising, but sponsorship, product placement, and uh, you may not have 35% of children, but in absolute numbers, you will have many more children than you would have in front of. I don't know, Scooby-Doo or Bob Square Pants, <laughs> which we would agree is a children's program. So um, what I'm trying to say is that this threshold, even though it's been improved, it used to be 50% in 2007, uh, nonetheless still is very insufficient. And Ofcom that applies, the, the uh, um, uh, broadcast regulator in the UK, that applies an even stricter threshold to determine what is a children's program in the UK, uh, has evaluated that 70% uh, of the TV that children watch does not fall within this uh, notion of children's program. So we have a problem here because children are still very much exposed to unhealthy food marketing. Now the second um, category of objections to the pledge is that the compliance rates are not uh, as high as one would hope. 
bearing in mind the, the commitment is already relatively limited, uh, on the internet it's only 94% uh, of compliance rate, and that's the 2013 uh, monitoring report that provides this. Uh, that shows, of course, that uh, it, it's more difficult to enforce on websites, but it also shows the broader point that there is no public sanction to a failure to comply with a self-regulatory initiative. So, um, problematic in itself. And when we monitor, yes, the pledge is monitored. Nonetheless, uh, there's no question of the impact of the pledge on public health as such. The, the question that is being asked is only, have you complied or not? Not, what is the effect of the compliance on public health? So we don't really know how effective that's been. But it clearly falls short of the recommendations that the World Health Organization has made uh, on a food marketing to children. And of course, there's this question of inherent conflicts of interest, arguably. I know this has not been particularly defined, but what we know is that the food industry is investing massively on neurosciences and uh, child psychology, trying to know exactly how you can target children. Uh, the big hype at the moment is viral marketing, so uh, the many likes of uh, Coca-Cola on Facebook, uh, and all the efforts that are made by, uh, to target children through, for example, advocates. So you have some games on the Coca-Cola website. These games, if you click, will take you no age restrictions um, apply, even though officially the line is we don't market to children of less than 12. Some games are clearly not for children of 12 and above. It will be clearly for very young children. Uh, but then once you click on the different links, you're asked to uh, provide some data, then you're uh, targeted through your mobile phones, and then through that you're given some vouchers if you tell your friends about Coca-Cola and so on, or, or others, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is clearly an integrated strategy that goes far beyond the um, commitments made under the EU pledge. And uh, you're asking the industry to shoot itself in the foot. Uh, because the industry has enormous uh, profits to make from advertising to children. And the main reason for the industry to make these commitments is very simply the fear of regulation. So making the regulator believe that they are doing what it takes to react quickly, respons uh, responsibly, and uh, of course cheaply for the public purse. So that's clearly not satisfactory. And the last uh, question I would raise about the uh, the pledge and the rhetoric of the food industry more generally when it comes to obesity prevention is the sponsorship of physical activity by food industry operators. Um, they have insisted more and more in the last few years about how they are contributing to the public good by sponsoring different sports events. As it happens, we're talking of the local sports events, that's my local swimming pool, uh, where the, the kids' competition is sponsored by Kellogg's, but it also goes far beyond these local events to uh, the uh, London Olympics and all the Olympic Games with uh, Coca-Cola and McDonald's as uh, uh, 11 of the world sponsors. Uh, Cadbury was a, a, a sponsor specifically for the London Games. Um, and they portray it as a kind of, uh, let's not forget my local cafe, and uh, it was, I went to the Olympics just to see it. So I did see it, and that was the entrance with Coca-Cola banners uh, all along. That's where you did have some uh, water fountains, but uh, apart from that, the only drinks you could get was Coca-Cola or uh, drinks from the Coca-Cola brand. 
Now, what does that mean? That uh, sponsorship, however the industry wants to portray it, is not philanthropy. But when you see them talk about it, it's creating jobs. Uh, they also talk about their uh, commitments to uh, a sustainable economy, but they don't talk about at all about the nutritional value of their uh, of their product. And interestingly, there was a food strategy for the London uh, 2012 Games. Uh, they talk about whether the beef is going to be sourced from local sources or from outside. Officially, it was from local sources, but most of it in the end came from Mexico. Um, and, uh, but there's nothing apart from the water fountains on the nutritional quality of these goods. So what I'm wondering is how far can this rhetoric go and how blind can the regulator be? Uh, because yes, we need to engage in uh, physical activity, but number one, let's not forget, as I've said, and I repeat, that uh, sponsorship is not philanthropy. There are a lot of studies that were made post uh, Beijing Games in 2008 that showed that the profits of the sponsors had increased very drastically following uh, the games and all the sponsorship uh, exposure that children and others had to it, to their brands. And um, uh, secondly, that the food industry, if it is to be a partner in the fight against obesity, should really be asked to focus on its core activities. And its core activities is the food chain and providing hopefully healthier products, restricting its advertising, reformulating the product. But why should it be praised for promoting physical activity when perhaps there's a degree of facade? I'll skip that, but I'm very happy to come back to it if anyone is interested, which relates to how does the European level and the uh, national level relate to each other? To which extent does the European Union constrain national actors and member states in developing um, stricter rules? Now, I started my talk on uh, the argument that the food industry has used over and over again on freedom of expression and how restricting food marketing would uh, restrict this expression and would therefore be contrary to uh, constitutional norms. Let's shift the paradigm because there are more and more uh, arguments to support the view that fundamental rights should not be so much used as a shield by the industry to protect themselves, by, but as a sword by regulators to actually promote healthier lifestyle, uh, uh, prevent obesity, and uh, as part of the strategy, restrict food marketing. Now, the WHO uh, should be the yardstick to assess the measures, and we should reiterate that standard setting is a clear responsibility of governments that shouldn't be delegated to private parties precisely to avoid conflicts of interest. So I think the recommendations go a bit further than uh, some of the documents, and in particular the 2004 strategy, to show where a conflict of interest uh, would lie. Now, let's look a bit at uh, some uh, UN bodies and uh, uh, people who have uh, worked for the UN and uh, analyzed the different fundamental rights instruments that we have, UN conventions, uh, to determine where uh, a rights discourse could be developed to promote a healthier lifestyle. And Olivier de Schutter, uh, who was a UN special rapporteur on the right to food up to uh, June this year, uh, had an important role to play to say that the right to food should be interpreted as the right to nutritious food. Not only uh, for, for, for a long time, the right to food was seen as a question of food security. Now it's also seen as questions of nutrition, and the new rapporteur uh, has also 
uh, already voiced uh, this idea and uh, intends to pursue this agenda. We also have some interpretation by UN uh, bodies on what we mean by the right to health. The Committee on the Rights of the Child is calling explicitly member states to restrict and regulate the marketing of fast foods. The UN Commissioner for Human Rights has also um, called member states to restrict the marketing of unhealthy food. And uh, more recently, and I don't think I have it on the slide, but more recently, the UN Rapporteur on the Right to Health in June 2014 uh, uh, also called very clearly on uh, the, the need to regulate food marketing in the name of public health uh, and explaining that this was uh, warranted by international conventions and the right to health. So you can see that uh, the industry was very creative when it invoked already in the 50s, uh, not in relation to obesity, but nonetheless uh, in the 50s, uh, the right to free commercial expression as a shield, but there is plenty now because uh, UN bodies are somehow a bit late, but UN bodies are reinventing themselves and reinventing, reinterpreting these rights in light of the problems of alcohol abuse, drugs abuse, uh, tobacco, and unhealthy food as well, calling specifically on states to do something. This is also to be found in the WHO uh, Action Plan on the Prevention and Control of Non-Communicable Diseases for 2013-2020, again, adopted unanimously. And I was in the room when that was adopted and in the drafting committee that when it was discussed. And the reason why it could be adopted was because the question of conflicts of interest was delegated to the next assembly in May 2014. Now, states couldn't agree, so we only had uh, as, as of today, a proposal for member states. So in the action plan, there are indeed, uh, at least I think I've accounted five statements relating to the importance of food marketing and uh, the need to do something to reduce the exposure of children to food marketing. References made to the WHO recommendations and a clear um, uh, references made to the need to avoid, uh, manage real perceived or potential conflicts of interest. But again, what we mean by conflicts of interest, what we mean exactly by the role the industry could play in this debate of food marketing regulation and more broadly obesity prevention has not been really determined. So the follow-up, I'm sorry this slide is particularly difficult, but I'll, I'll try to uh, show again that WHO is rowing in two different directions. On the one hand, they clearly recognize that we need a human rights approach, so that could potentially be relying on the right to food, the right to health, that I've mentioned, um, and the need to avoid conflicts of interest, and in particular, there is this uh, need for WHO to set norms and standards uh, which are protected from undue influence. But at the same time, uh, the World Health Organization, in its proposal of uh, May 2014, uh, says that uh, international business organizations could be uh, privileged partners in uh, the, the dialogue that WHO has with uh, stakeholders, which is the term to say interested parties. So again, we don't really know where to draw the line, and uh, we, uh, we, we don't really know uh, how the WHO itself concedes the role of industry. So it means that, again, WHO is leaving very important questions undefined, and therefore the potential 
for uh, food industry operators, also for alcoholic beverages, we have exactly the same problem. Whereas for tobacco, a very clear red line has been drawn because the framework convention on tobacco control says in its article 5.3 that there should be no engagement with tobacco operators. However, we know that the food industry has developed very similar tactics uh, in terms of showing how good citizens uh, they would be and how uh, important partners they would be in this uh, obesity prevention strategy, whereas uh, it's been very made clear that the tobacco industry had uh, lied so clearly over 50 years as to the dangers of tobacco that it should no longer be a welcome participant in negotiating uh, tables. So uh, my point is very basic. Yes, we've seen uh, an evolution of the discourse. It's becoming more insidious in some ways because uh, that has been allowed by regulatory authorities. WHO, uh, we could have spoken in exactly the same way about the UK government and its infamous in, uh, responsibility deal where you have uh, uh, major alcoholic beverages and uh, food industry operators around the table deciding what kind of obesity prevention strategy and uh, alcohol, uh, abuse, uh, alcohol abuse uh, strategy should the, um, the um, government uh, discuss. And the reason for that is really much a failure to seize the bull by the horn, the red bull by the horns, uh, and determining how far we could uh, conceive the industry as a proper partner in this obesity epidemic. So I'm raising more questions than I'm providing answers, I guess, but I look forward to your question.